0: Ever since the fall of mankind, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, there has been a great disparity between the message of this world and the message of God. From those earliest days of humankind, the great deceiver, the ruler of this world has been convincing men and women that all of this is about all of us. That my life is ultimately all about me. While God even in the very first week of creation made it abundantly clear as we'll see today that all of this is actually all about Jesus Christ. And that my life is actually all about him. But you see if the enemy of our souls, the ruler of this world as Jesus called him in John twelve thirty one and John fourteen thirty, If he can influence this world enough to make us believe that life is all about me then we will make all sorts of decisions throughout our lives solely based on how those decisions affect us personally regardless of how contrary they may be to the will of God or the welfare of others, which of course is precisely what, what people do every single day, right? If you're honest with yourself, how many decisions do you make from day to day where the first and greatest consideration in that decision is yourself with God and other people, maybe, maybe somewhere after that, if at all. Well, that's called living for yourself. And the fact is, we do it all the time because whether you want to admit it or not, we are all influenced to one degree or another by this world and more specifically by the culture that we live in, which says that you should come first. That you should take care of yourself first and then you can help those around you if you want to with whatever might be left of you to give but that's not who God says that you are his word says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God himself which means he created you first of all exactly how he meant to so that you could reflect Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. You understand there's no part of how you were created to be or who you were created to be that was a mistake or somehow less than it could have been or that should have been different in some way. No, he created you exactly how he intended to. And because of that, you have a tremendous responsibility to not waste one single day of the life that he's given you trying to be someone other than exactly the person he created you to be. Namely, someone who reflects the very image of God, which we talked about last week. But our culture, and as I will argue today, even much of our modern church culture promotes the value of self above everything else. In fact, We even try to use the word of God to do so. And in the process, we're missing the whole point of who we are and why we're here. Because listen, uh, the Bible is not primarily a personal rule book or a manual for godly living or a guide to a better life on this earth, even though there are certainly uh, many rules in the Bible to help us live a godly life with the promise of many blessings on this earth that come from living that way. Yes, but that is not the primary purpose of the Bible. No, the the Bible above and beyond everything else is the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the only true God whose mere existence demands our unbounded allegiance. The entire Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ. The Gospels point to the life of Jesus Christ, and everything after that points to the church of Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ, And yet much of the modern church in the West has allowed itself to become so influenced by pop culture that we've reduced the scriptures down to nothing more than a self-help book full of wise sayings meant to make us feel better. And in the process, we're missing out on the whole purpose of the story, which is to point us to Jesus Christ, not to point us back to ourselves. You see, that's... That's exactly what the serpent did to Eve in the garden. He simply turned her focus away from God and back onto herself. And he's been doing that to the rest of the world ever since, which we should expect in the world, but not in the church Yes, we were wonderfully made, but not so we could spend our lives staring in the mirror, reflecting ourselves before the rest of the world. No, we were wonderfully made to stare into the face of Jesus until we reflect him to the rest of the world, which is exactly what... We're going to discover in our story today as we continue in the sermon series working our way through the creation of all things where we find God now revealing the ultimate purpose of mankind to mankind right from the start. And, and my prayer all week in preparing this message has been that, that we, the church today, would regain a clear understanding of the ultimate purpose for which we were so wonderfully made. So let's turn there together then. We'll pick the story back up where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 2. And we'll begin with the first three verses. Again, this is, uh, this is part two of the sermon we started last Sunday where we covered the first two points of this message last week. So today we're going to be looking at points 3, 4, and 5. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. So uh, for six days now, God has been busy creating time and space and matter and the heavens and the earth and the plants and the animals and mankind. And then on the seventh day, He does something peculiar. In fact, he does something that seems out of character for God. He stops. He stops creating. He stops working. He stops speaking. He stops everything. And then he calls that seventh day the Sabbath, which seems out of character for God. Because other than on this seventh day of the creation story, we find that God is always working, always speaking, always moving on our behalf. The Apostle Paul said that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 which is not limited to six days of the week. In fact fact, Jesus was persecuted by the religious Jews for working on the Sabbath. When they confronted him his response was my father is working until now and I am working. John 5.17 several translations say it this way my father is always working and so am I. Keep in mind, Jesus said that specifically in the context of the work that he was doing on the Sabbath. And again, it seems to contradict this very first Sabbath in the Genesis story where God creates this seven-day cycle for mankind, which, by the way, has been copied in one form or another by cultures around the world and throughout time. In in, uh, ancient Ugaritic mythology, Baal takes seven days to construct his sanctuary, Uh, On the seventh day of the Akita Festival, the annual Babylonian enthronement festival on New Year's Day, their god makes the procession from the Akita house outside of the city to assume his place in his temple as his role uh, as their ruler. In ancient Sumerian literature, at the commencement of their pagan temple, there was always seven days of celebration. And interestingly... Uh, During the French Revolution of 1789, there was an attempt by the revolutionaries to de-Christianize the country. And one of their main efforts was to change the calendar to a 10-day week instead of seven. And it failed miserably. Why? Because God created the earth on a seven-day cycle, six days to work, and one day to enter into Sabbath rest. The fact is, we were made for sabbath rest. Now in Mark 2:27 Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, which he said because of the way the Pharisees had come to define the Mosaic law. They they worshipped the law instead of worshiping God. So their definition of the Sabbath was far from what God defines sabbath rest as in Genesis 2 as we'll see. And so the question is, what exactly is sabbath rest? because it is decidedly not what our culture defines as rest today either. Okay, uh, it's not like God was tired after the first six days of creation, right? He's omnipotent, he's all powerful, he has no need of rest. So why is there a Sabbath and what exactly is it? As a kid growing up in church, I was always taught that the Sabbath was a day for us to recharge a day for us to reboot, a day to recover ourselves. And part of that meant going to church on that Sabbath day. And the reason God rested on the seventh day of creation, I was told, was to model for us our own need for that kind of rest. And then as the decades have gone by, Sabbath rest in the modern church has become more and more and more about what we think in our culture when we think of rest. I hear people talking all the time uh, about Sabbath taking time to Sabbath, as they describe taking time to unplug from the grind of everyday life so they can recharge their batteries. It is common for Christians today to talk about and write about the Sabbath as if it was meant to be a time of reflection and relaxation for us. Listen to me, that is not at all what Sabbath rest means. God did not enter into Sabbath rest to show us how to relax and unwind. In fact, the purpose of Sabbath rest has nothing to do with that. The confusion lies in the difference between what our culture defines as rest and what God defines as rest, at least when it comes to the Sabbath. When we talk about rest in our culture, we're talking about ourselves, right? For us to rest in the way that we define rest today is to focus time on ourselves, to take some me time, Time to recharge, time to unwind, time to relax, time to recuperate, maybe throw in a church service or some devotional time into the mix. But when God's word says that he rested in verses two and three, it's the Hebrew word Shabbath or Sabbath, which means to cease, to stop. When Joshua 5.12 says that the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, the word ceased in that verse is the same word, Sabbath, the same Hebrew word used in our story when God said that he rested. When Job 32.1 says that his friends ceased to answer Job, again, it's the same Hebrew word, it's Sabbath. The Sabbath has nothing to do with rest in the way that our culture defines rest. It's not about Slowing down or taking it easy or unwinding so that you can get refreshed and have some me time. It has nothing to do with that. To Sabbath, first of all, is to stop abruptly. But the question is, why? Why would the God of the universe, the one who created all of this, the one who is always working, the one who is always speaking, why would that God stop, right? He wasn't out of breath. On the seventh day he didn't need a breather, he didn't need a day off to recharge his battery and he wasn't telling us to do that either by the way. No, he stopped so that we could enter in specifically to Sabbath rest. So what is Sabbath rest? Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll read the first 11 verses. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This doesn't sound like a day off to me. Mere relaxation, taking it easy. Not if we're supposed to be afraid of not entering into it. For good news, he says, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed... Enter that rest. He's talking about Sabbath rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, Again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts for if Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive To enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You understand taking time off from your job, recharging your battery, taking it easy, taking time to unwind, focusing on yourself. Those can all be wonderful things that we should probably all do very often, but it has nothing to do with Sabbath rest. Entering into Sabbath rest is entering into Jesus Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. Taking time to Sabbath means taking time with Jesus. Now, keep that in mind as we revisit the seventh day of creation. Just think about it. After six days of creating, six consecutive days of staggering changes to the heavens and the earth and everything in them, Can you just imagine the cataclysmic, even violent shifting and shaking that was occurring in the earth, those first Six days, the the ear-splitting roar of the mountains rising up from the ground, the thunderous booming of the seas as they were formed, the lion's first roar, the bird's first flight, and man's first words, the overwhelmingly powerful sounds that filled the air, all together for six straight days while God created and crafted his masterpiece. And then, on the seventh day, he stopped. And the only thing more deafening than the first 6 days of creation was the silence of the 7th day. As the all-powerful, all-present, almighty God ceased all activity. You see, he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't calling all of creation to relax. He was calling all of creation to attention to singularly focus all of our attention on Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things were made. The Sabbath isn't about me, it's about Jesus. It isn't about recharging my battery. It's about refocusing my heart. It isn't about relaxing my mind. It's about renewing my commitment. It isn't about taking time for myself. It is about giving my time to him. The Sabbath isn't about us. It is all about Jesus. And of course, anytime you spend that kind of time focusing on Christ, of course, you will be revived, you will be renewed, you will be strengthened, and you will be rejuvenated as a result of focusing on Him and not on yourself. And yet, our culture, and I mean our church culture, interprets the Sabbath as we do so many of the other scriptures as self focused me time. In commenting on the modern church, author and professor David Wells writes, The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness, holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself. The world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes. All that remains is the self. Bible scholar John Walton says this kind of Christianity is a me religion God loves me Christ died for me Jesus saved me heaven is prepared for me these are all true of course but they do not comprise the sum total of our faith in the end our Christianity is all about God you see to Sabbath rest is to stop doing anything and everything that takes our focus off of Jesus Christ at least once a week, and then to put all of our energy and all of our effort and all of our focus and all of our exertion and all of our passion and all of our resources squarely onto Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, because he is the Sabbath rest that we enter into, which is why the work that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath was acceptable work, because it people to God. That's why we go to church one day a week instead of staying at home to point ourselves and others to Jesus Christ. That's why we don't go to our jobs one day a week to point ourselves and others to Jesus Christ. That's why we don't make the Sabbath rest about me time because the rest that we were so wonderfully made for is all about Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading. Verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. And delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So God created mankind. We covered that in detail uh, in the previous messages in this series and then he put him uh, in the Garden of Eden. Now why did God put them in a garden? Of all places, if if mankind is the crown of creation, why not put them in a palace or a beach? Some of you would say amen to that, right? Maybe some place that was low maintenance. Honestly, of all places, why would you put them in a garden? Well, the answer is... To work it and keep it. So just as God labored in his creation and his work was good, so too man is expected to work and his work should be good. The truth is we were made for work. Remember, uh, this was before the effects of sin on the earth, at least mankind's sin and the curse on the earth pronounced later by God. I know that uh, people today often associate work with our fallen world. Like when we're in heaven, we're all just going to be floating around in the clouds playing harps. And yet in the newly created and perfected state of the earth, mankind, who was also sinless at this point, right after being created, was put to work by God to work the land before the curse. Why? Because we were made to work. Work is good for us, and when done properly, and honestly, and for the right reasons, work produces physical and spiritual fruit in our lives and in the lives of others. Proverbs 21:25 says the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 10:4 says a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs fourteen twenty three says, In all toil there's profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And 2 Thessalonians three ten says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Paul says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You get the point. We were made for work. There's an old saying, Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Look, I understand the point of that saying. But can you see the negative connotation in that saying and in the culture that produced it toward work? Do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. As if not working is somehow the goal. And again, I understand the idea here, but it would probably be better if we said do what you love and you'll love working the rest of your life. Because work is good for us and it's good for others when done the right way. It is what we were wonderfully made to do. But again, the problem we run into with work is when we buy into our culture's view of work instead of God's view of work. Our culture says that we work to get ahead. We work primarily to better ourselves and maybe our family if we have one. And as a result, our definition of success when it comes to work effectively becomes doing all that you can to take from someone else, to exceed other people, to impress others, and to surpass as many other people as possible in your field of work. Uh, In their excellent book, How Now Shall We Live, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy write, In our materialistic culture, work is reduced to a utilitarian function, a means of attaining benefits for this world, this life. Whether material gain or self-fulfillment, work no longer has a transcendent purpose as a means of serving and loving God. No wonder, then, that many are questioning the very meaning of work. This offers Christians a rich opportunity to make the case that work is truly fulfilling only when it is firmly tied to its moral and spiritual moorings. It is time for the church to reclaim this crucial part of life, restoring a biblical understanding of work and economics. A biblical theology of work should be a frequent subject for sermons, just as it was during the Reformation when establishing one's vocation was considered a crucial element in discipleship. See, our modern culture views work as a personal pursuit for personal gain. The very opposite of God's view of our work. The Apostle Paul, a man who certainly had experienced all the worldly success that his culture had to offer and then walked away from all of it to instead labor for Christ, he said, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ." Colossians 3, 23 and 24. You see, as far as our our culture is concerned, our work is focused on ourselves, while as far as God is concerned, our work is to be focused on Christ, which is the key, by the way, to your work being fulfilling, not necessarily easy, but a great joy to get up for every day because your work takes on a whole new meaning when it is focused on Jesus Christ instead of on yourself. And look, If it is impossible in your line of work, if it is impossible for you to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about, by the way, uh, working somewhere where you don't get along with the people you work with or, or not enjoying the actual labor that you're engaged in. There are seasons for just about everything in our lives, including having to earn a living at times in your life, even when your job is not your dream job. That's actually just called being an adult. Now, what I'm talking about is if it is impossible for the line of work that you are in, if it is impossible to bring glory and honor to Christ in that line of work, then you need to go and find a new line of work. I know that that sounds harsh, but listen. If an abortion doctor came to Christ... It would be impossible for that doctor to remain in that line of work and still bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ in that profession. And so if the actual labor that you are employed in is antithetical to the very word of God, then it is time for you to find another job because the whole purpose of your work is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And yet outside of that type of a situation, it doesn't matter what your work is. You can always bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ in your work by being diligent and thorough and honest and trustworthy and compassionate. A short, aside from those professions that inherently violate God's word, you can reflect the image of Christ to your employers and your employees and your coworkers and your clients and anyone else you come in contact with at work, no matter what you do for a living, because work is a gift from God intended to produce physical and spiritual fruit in our lives that glorifies God. It's what we were wonderfully made to do, so don't begrudge your job or the people you work with. Just see it for what it is, an opportunity every single day to reflect Jesus Christ to people who desperately need him. In fact, the truth is Christians should be well known In our culture as the finest employees, the best employers, the most gracious, character-filled, long-suffering, least complaining, hardest working, and genuinely loving workers on the planet. Because when you reflect Jesus Christ and people brag on you, they're bragging on him even when they, they don't realize it. Listen, when you're working for the Lord, no matter the activity, it is all sacred work. No matter what you're doing, it is all ministry. Right? And I just want to share one final word on this point and then we'll move on. There are those of you who know that God has called you to some pursuit, some vocation, some ministry other than what you're currently pursuing and you're hesitant about answering that call, whether it's fear of the unknown or a significant drop in income or you're worried about what others will think, whatever the reason, you've waited on pursuing that calling in your life. Listen, every day that you hesitate is a day full of purpose and fulfillment that is lost. And I can say that because I've experienced it firsthand. I understand, that, uh, I understand that God's timing is critical and we need to operate on his timetable without a doubt. I'm not talking about getting ahead of God here, but if you know that he's calling you to some pursuit and in total honesty with yourself, you know that you're putting it off, do not wait one more day. Because every day that you avoid that calling is a day that you're robbing from God and from yourself and from the people who need you to be doing what he designed and created you to do. So answer the call of God in your life and answer it with haste. Let's finish the chapter, verse 18 to the end. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice notice it was God who decided that Adam needed another human being To be in relationship with there's no mention of Adam trying to coax God into making another person we don't see him complaining or feeling dissatisfied with his life he doesn't seem to be moping around or sad and why would he be he was already in relationship with the Creator before there was any separation from sin it was God who said it is not good that the man should be alone Because God never intended for us to live our lives in isolation from other human beings. From the beginning, he never intended for us to be alone. You see, we were wonderfully made not only to be in relationship with God, but to be in relationship with other human beings as well. The fact is we were made for each other. The question is why? Adam had everything anyone could ask for. He had an amazing purpose to fulfill, to work and care for the earth. He had a job that produced all that he needed. He had dominion over the plants and the animals. He lived in the most desirable location on the earth. There was no sickness or disease or poverty or competition or want of any kind. And he had fellowship with the creator himself. Adam had it made. And yet God said, the situation here isn't good. Because Adam was alone. Why was it not good for Adam to be alone? Listen, because Adam could not reflect the image of God by himself. The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been eternally in fellowship with itself. We talked about that last week. And if you go back to the sixth day of creation, notice what God the Father says to the Son and the Spirit. Then God said... Let us make man, meaning mankind, in our image after our likeness and let them, not him, not her, them. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Before God created Adam, he had already planned to create Eve, because only together can we truly reflect the image of the Godhead. We were never meant to be alone. And yet our American culture is so hyper-individualistic. We hold individualism as a core value in our culture. In fact, believing in self is the highest ideal in our culture. And that ideal has pervaded every part of our culture, including our church culture. It is not uncommon for people in the church today to say things like, it doesn't matter what people do to me or think about me, I don't need them anyway. All I need is Jesus. Or, hey, me and Jesus is enough. Look, you may honestly believe that, but God doesn't. That may be what you think, but that is decidedly not what God thinks. God says that you being alone is not good. That's why he created marriage. That's why he created family. That's why he created the church, so that together we could reflect the image of the Godhead. So he designed and created us to be with other human beings. Listen, it is woven into our spiritual and emotional and physical DNA, an inherent need to be with other people. And yet it's more than just being together. It's what we do when we are together. The Apostle Paul wrote, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, that's all of us, joined and held together, not separately, but together. And how does he say we're held together? By every joint that's every single one of you doing our part to be together with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love Ephesians four fifteen and 16 listen we were made for each other to reflect the image of God together for what purpose to build one another up into Christ so that we could Sabbath together with one another. That is the end game. That is our ultimate purpose. It was the exclamation point at the end of the creation story, and it is the exclamation point at the end of our lives on earth. It is why we were so wonderfully made to glorify God as we Sabbath in Christ by His Spirit who unites us. That's why we live together. That's why we work together. That's why we serve together. That's why we sacrifice together. That's why we worship together. That's why we live out this gospel together to build one another up in love in the image of God. Our culture is all about me. God is all about us together reflecting the image of Christ, which is also why it should be heart-wrenchingly difficult for us. It should be painfully difficult for us, almost impossible for us to criticize and tear each other down. And yet in our culture, and I mean in our church culture, we have become experts at tearing our brothers and sisters in Christ apart, and we should be ashamed of ourselves. How? How? How has it become so easy for us, whether face to face or through other people or through social media? How has it become so easy for us to look at another human being who bears the image of God himself, someone who shares the same spirit of Christ that is in us, someone who God loves so much that he sent his son to die for? How has it become so easy for us to look at that person and then tear them to pieces because they disagree with us or think differently than us about some issue or preference do you understand the church is sacred not talking about the building talking about the people of God your brothers and sisters in Christ we have no right to profane those who were crafted and created in the image of a holy God and just because you can doesn't mean you should no there should be such a holy reverence among us for the people of God that even the thought of criticizing one another should stop us dead in our tracks. I'm not talking about holding one another accountable, by the way, with compassion and love and humility. We have to do that. I'm talking about tearing one another down with needless criticism. Besides which, criticism never led anyone to Christ. Christ but it sure has driven a lot of people away from him. You were wonderfully made to build one another up, other people who were also wonderfully made, so that together we can glorify him by reflecting his image, which means if your words and your actions are tearing people down, then you are not fulfilling your God-given purpose in this life, because we were made for each other. The fact is, there's a great disparity between the message of this world and the message of Christ. There always has been. Evolution says it's every man for himself. It's survival of the fittest. It's natural selection. In other words, this life is all about me. God's word says that you were knit together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God himself for a great purpose. In other words, this life is about something so much bigger than just me. And when we're together, building one another up in love in the Sabbath rest of Christ, we reflect that image of God and fulfill that great purpose which testifies to this world that this life is all about Jesus Christ. And that, that is what you were so wonderfully made for. Let's pray.